Welcome to this Niche Audiocast. I'm Angela Brown, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader at Niche. Today, you're going to hear a webinar that's been converted to a podcast so you can listen to it on the go. You can find all of the resources that are mentioned here and the original recording on the Enrollment Insights blog, which you can find at niche.bz insights. Enjoy! Good afternoon and welcome to this Niche Enrollment Insights webinar. Uh, this conversation today, uh, we're going to be talking about cookies and pixels and data. Oh my. Uh, oh my. We'll start off. <laughs> start off here. Uh, just some general housekeeping issues. Uh, you know, I, we always get this question, and yes, this is going to be recorded. Uh, you'll be getting the recording tomorrow. I'll also be available on the Enrollment Insights blog. So if you want to see all the resources and the recording there, uh, and any questions you have, usually the console loads on the right side of your screen. And you can put your questions in that chat screen. Uh, our presenters today are Angela Brown. She is the Senior Enrollment Insights Leader for K-12, through uh, and Megan Tracy, who is the Senior Digital Marketing Manager. I'll be your moderator, and I'm, I'll turn things over and come back at the end to answer those questions. Love it. Thank you, Will. Okay, so welcome everyone. Here is a look at what we're going to cover today. And in each section, we'll also be sharing what impact, if any, we're seeing on behalf of our partners at Niche. So I'm going to run through each of these big privacy changes, what they mean, how they work, what you can do. And then Megan is going to chime in and share what we're seeing on the partner side. But first, we're going to do a quick poll. I thought it would be helpful for all of us just to get a baseline idea of what we're all seeing in terms of changes in Facebook or Google ad performance. So go ahead and let us know if you've seen some changes in the last few months. If you don't know, that's okay. We have an option for you too. Um, but we're gonna take a look and, and see what people are experiencing. Let's see where we've landed. Okay, lots of folks who are unsure and that's that's totally fine. Um, but it looks like we've got a pretty solid percentage of folks who have seen some changes. So now we're gonna get into why that might be and some things that you'll be able to do. So first, we're going to start with iOS 14.5, which was released last spring. So we're we're going into almost a year of, of living in the world of iOS 14.5. One thing that I do want to mention, um, because of course this happened, it's very timely. Megan actually shared with me this morning that Google announced this week that they too are planning to phase out cross-app ad tracking on the Android platform. So we don't know what the timing is. The details are still very vague, but that's just a great example of why we're having this conversation and the fact that privacy changes are going to continue to keep us on our toes in the coming months and years. So stay tuned. 
So what is iOS 14.5? Even though a lot of big marketing changes were talked about last year under the umbrella of iOS 14, it was actually the release of iOS 14.5 that really changed things up for us. So with iOS 14.5, app tracking transparency, which is what we're really talking about here, was rolled out. And this is a tool that requires iOS users to actively opt in to allowing apps to track their activities. And as of November of last year, according to CNBC, 62% of iPhone users had opted out of traffic, out of out of tracking. So it's a pretty significant share of iPhone users. So here's a look at what it, at how it works. All iOS users have an IDFA or identifier for advertisers that advertisers like us use for attribution, ad personalization, and tracking performance. And now with iOS 14.5, as you've probably seen on your own devices, apps are now required to show a push notification to make users aware of what's being tracked before they install and to ask for permission to track their data after installation has occurred. Users also have the ability to manually choose which apps they do and don't want to track in their device settings. So they can change their minds, they can go back retroactively and make a different decision. And as a result, people who opt out of tracking won't be sharing their IDFA with apps. They can also finally opt out of precise location traffic, tracking. And this is what that looks like in practice. We've all seen this push notification. So this is what users see um, when, when iOS 14.5 is in play. So what does all of this mean? A lot of discussion has centered around Facebook specifically or you know, under the meta universe, but it, it does have an impact on other advertising platforms too, just in different ways. Snapchat, TikTok, lots of other social ad platforms are affected. But for the purposes of this webinar, we're gonna focus on the impact on advertising under meta, so Facebook and Instagram, and Google ads because those are the platforms that we work with directly most often. So starting with Facebook, by allowing users to opt out of tracking with ATT, iOS 14.5 devices have basically limited Facebook ads in three major areas, and that's targeting, reporting, and optimization. So pixel actions like form submissions or click to download actions are having fewer numbers reported because of people opting out of being tracked. And if there's less pixel tracking information or activity, there's less data for, to work from for optimizing ads. Users who opt out of tracking also can't be included in retargeting or lookalike audiences. So people are seeing their audience sizes shrink. From a reporting standpoint, if you're using pixel conversion metrics like return on ad spend or cost per acquisition to evaluate your campaign performance, you're also going to see some inaccuracies with these metrics. And from an optimization standpoint, even though, so more advanced Facebook advertising has typically relied in the past on the algorithm to serve ads to people based on previous conversions, but that tactic isn't working as well now. And that's also due in part to the fact that Facebook is limiting advertisers to eight conversion events per website. So there are fewer data points for the algorithm to reference. There's a lot going on. Looking at Google ads, there is some 
slightly better news here. Um, the impact is much smaller, but you're going to see that things are very similar to what's happening with Facebook. So if you haven't noticed this already, um, and since lots of people are in the unsure category based on our poll, you'll wanna keep an eye out for fluctuations in delivery and performance for ad campaigns that are running on iOS. If a user rejects tracking, conversion events won't be properly attributed to your campaign. So that's another thing to be on the lookout for. You might have some campaigns that look like they're not really working for you, but in reality, it's just a matter of conversions that are not being reported. And then another challenge yet again is the reduction in your audience size. So the number of people you can target and the insights that you're able to gather about your audience as a result of that. So what is a marketer to do? Um, when all else fails, continue to focus on proper properties your institution owns. So your website is always gonna be number one there. If it's set up properly, your website will have tracking capabilities and tools for analytics that can help you understand enough about who your visitors are and where they're coming from so you can actually make your own audience segments. Another thing that you'll wanna do is verify your domains and business manager, and we'll include a link for how you can do that on the page for the recording, so you can see those instructions. But what that will basically do is tell Facebook that you're a legit institution, and it can help if you run into issues with your account in the future. On the re-engagement front, since people have to log into Facebook to use it in the first place, the platform still has data that you can use to re-engage people who have interacted with content on your page in the past, watched a video, or clicked on an ad. And their activities are still being tracked because they're happening within the application. So Facebook is still able to monitor things that are happening in the app. To go back to owned channels, I also want to remind everybody about how useful email and SMS can be. So email, physical addresses, phone numbers for both prospective students and families can be really useful while we're all kind of dealing with these ongoing privacy changes. Or if you run into an outage like the one that Facebook had last fall, which you know put a lot of people in a bind. So it's all about having that combination between third-party platforms and things that you actually own. You just wanna make sure that you're keeping your records clean and up to date. Another thing I wanna mention is organic content. Lots of chatter has been happening around organic content, basically saying that organic reach is dead, we're all doomed, and that's not true. It's just harder to get people's attention. And I can tell you, as someone who looks at a lot of school social content on a regular basis, there's a lot of sameness out there. So there's an opportunity, especially in K-12, we have both audiences on this webinar actually, which is unusual for us to have folks from K-12 and higher ed, there's a lot of photos and text. And so even just mixing up the mediums that you use can help you stand out in the feeds. Um, I wanna really quickly share a few things that you can do if you wanna kind of refresh your organic social content. One is very simple, and that's just to focus on quality content that's brand centric. So if there are stories that reinforce your school's brand pillars, your core offerings, or your mission, that can help you bring more focus to what you post and tell a more cohesive story. Another thing you wanna do is optimize your content for the algorithms. And so you've probably heard about the importance of optimizing content across different platforms. 
And the way that the algorithm works is just as important as the way that people consume content on those different platforms. So platforms like Facebook and Instagram are more recency-based, recency whereas TikTok is more interest-based, at least right now. So we're not gonna get into all the nuances of each algorithm because that's a webinar in and of itself, but it is important to understand and stay on top of how the algorithms for the platforms your school is using work so that you can plan your content accordingly and make adapt adaptations when you need to. Another thing I wanna mention is if your school has taken a break from video content during the pandemic, which is understandable, you know, it was harder to capture for a variety of reasons. In some cases, it can still be a challenge, but it's time to consider bringing that back because it's such a powerful medium for engagement. And it doesn't have to be high production, super expensive, you know, the drone shot of your campus with the soft music in the background. There is a place for those types of videos, but people connect more with more informal content. That's why TikTok has exploded. That's why you're seeing Instagram reels popping up from everyone, from your kids to your neighbor to, you know, large brands. It's because video is really, really powerful for a variety of reasons, not the least of which it gives you an opportunity to show your school's unique personality in a way that static content cannot. And it really gives people an idea of what it's like to be part of your community. And that authenticity is very important. There's a need for the formal and the informal. And then the last thing I wanna say before I turn things over to Megan is the importance of testing. I mean, I, I can't emphasize that enough, especially right now. So iOS 14.5 basically blew up Meta's algorithm and they're basically rebuilding their backend when it comes to optimization and tracking, which means that advertisers have to continuously test and refine their tactics to find that sweet spot that works for them and keeps your costs down. Um, and so with that, I'm gonna turn things over to Megan to share more about what we're seeing with social advertising on the niche side. Thanks. Yeah, so these these next three slides just kind of talk high level about what our remarketing is and um, how we kind of run things for our partners. So um, the school search process is very long for a student and, you know, for a family, depending on what they're looking for, trying to find the right fit. And so our marketing solution allows us to stay top of mind for those families across multiple platforms throughout the their whole search process. So we're running our ads on Google, both search and display on Google, on Facebook, on Instagram, and then also banner ads on Niche. Um, we are using remarketing audiences. So all of our ads are showing to um, users that have visited our site before. And so we're creating these audiences based off of various pages on our site that are relevant to our particular partner. Um, and then the majority of our ad traffic clicks back to the niche profile. So they see an ad on one of these various platforms and then they click back to, they click on it, they go back to the niche profile. And then the conversion rate that we're looking at, which is a little bit different than um, potentially someone that's running these ads on their own, we're looking at how likely they are to click out to the partner's website. So our conversion rate is typically seven to 10%. When they get to the profile, they click out at a seven to 10% rate. We can go to the next slide, Angela. Um, cool, so this is just looking a little bit more at the display and social marketing. These are what the ads look like for various schools. Um, and, you know, it, as, it, as it says on, on the slide, 
that we're trying to reach these prospective families, you know, wherever they are. And then the same thing with search. And the key difference um, with our search marketing is that we're able to layer on keywords on top of our remarketing audiences. And so we're still bidding on the same keywords that anyone will bid on, but we have this high intent remarketing audience. And so that cross interest there allows us to make sure that our dollars are spent for um, the most high intent families. Cool, so then diving into the numbers just a little bit more, we had 30 million users on Niche using iOS 14 or higher um, between April 1st and January 31st. For some context on that number, just looking at total users in the same time period, it was 63 million. So slightly less than half of our users are iOS users. Um, we haven't really seen a big dip on in audience sizes. Um, and if we're specifically looking at Meta, so at, at Facebook and Instagram, um, quickly looking at the volume that we're able to deliver, that's a good metric to kind of look at to see have your audience sizes decreased. If you've seen a big decrease in volume, but you haven't changed the audiences that you're targeting, then those audiences are smaller. There are just less people for you to reach in there. And so between um, January 2021 and April 2021, we delivered 10 million impressions on social. And then just looking at the four months following uh, the iOS 15 release, we delivered 9.8 million impressions. So we did not see a substantial decrease in our volume and we haven't changed anything with our audiences um, kind of across the board. This doesn't completely eliminate us from seeing changes due to iOS 14 from some of our partners that we've talked to to see kind of what they're seeing. Uh, anecdotally, we've heard that those who saw the biggest dip in ad performance were really reliant on in-app placements on social. And at Niche, we're not using in-app placements. We were relying much more heavily on desktop placements. Um, so, so far we haven't seen a big, a big change in our marketing because of this, but we're gonna continue kind of looking at the data and looking at our audiences and, and making sure that we're still able to, to serve all of our partners. Awesome, thank you, Megan. So next, we're going to take a look at iOS 15. And this is one where you're going to want to share your notes in this part of the recording with your colleagues and other departments that send a lot of bulk emails, because it'll have an impact on them too. So when we talk about email insanity, what are we talking about? This basically comes down to two things that impact marketers, and that's Apple Mail privacy protection and hide my email, with mail privacy being the most important. So hide my email only impacts iCloud Plus users at this point, so we're not gonna spend a ton of time on it, but I do wanna mention it in case you see it elsewhere. So mail privacy protection stops senders from using invisible pixels to collect information about a user. And the result of that is that Apple Mail users can hide whether or not they open emails and when. Hide My Email allows iCloud Plus users to share unique random email addresses that forward emails to their personal inboxes when they want to keep their actual email addresses private. So similar to the iOS 14.5 app tracking update, mail privacy protection is something that users have to opt into. When a user opens the mail app, they'll see a message asking them to either protect mail activity or don't protect mail activity. 
And if they choose to protect it, Apple will route emails through a server to preload email content before it's distributed to readers, even if they don't open the messages. And we'll dig into the impact of that in just a second. The one thing that I do want to mention is that mail privacy protection only affects the mail email app. So if, for example, you have a subscriber who's a Gmail user and they interact with their emails within the Gmail app, this is not going to impact them. But if you have a Gmail user who interacts with their emails on the Apple Mail app, that's where mail privacy protection will come into play. So that is a bit of a nuance that you'll wanna be aware of. And then with Hide My Email, that works for apps and websites that support sign in with Apple with some enhanced features through iCloud Plus. So if you read our blog post back in July about this topic, this information is going to look familiar to you because what we're showing here and on the next slide are still true now that iOS 15 has been in the wild for a few months. So the headline here is that even if you've, if you've been using email open rates as a key metric for email campaign performance, which lots and lots and lots of people do, I still talk to people all the time who are relying very heavily on that, I would definitely take a beat and start considering looking at some other things. For one, because mail privacy essentially allows Apple to open emails on users' behalf, open rates are being overinflated for marketers that have a subscriber base with a lot of Apple Mail users. I've heard of some open rates as high as 100%, and we know that that's not right. Um, and with Hide My Email, multiple contact records can be associated with opening the same email because a user can create a fake email address to protect their real personal email address. You also have to think about things that open rates impact. So things like list segmentation, A-B testing, send time optimization, any conflows that you might have in place that are based on opens. Um, all of those are things that are being impacted by this change. So as an example, A-B testing for things like subject lines, from names, pre-header text, those are all things that rely on open rates to choose a winner between two versions of an email. And if you don't have reliable open rate data, your test results for those variables are just not going to be as helpful. And then the last thing is, given the stat at the end of this slide, if you haven't seen a change with your email open data, you likely will very soon. So Megan and I actually did a version of this presentation at a virtual conference back in December, and there's been a big jump um, since the last published data that we were able to find from October of 2021 to just as recent as January of 2022 in the adoption rate for iOS 15. So it's gaining some steam for sure. So there's a chance that if you haven't seen the impact yet, you might in the future. So here's a look at what you'll wanna do. As I mentioned, you'll really want to rethink the KPIs that you're using to measure the effectiveness of your email campaigns. So things that you should start paying attention to if you aren't already are your click-through rate, your subscriber growth rate, so seeing how fast your audience is growing compared to how fast it's shrinking with unsubscribes, um, your conversion rate, so looking at people who are taking actions for everything from scheduling a meeting with an admission officer to signing up for an event or scheduling a visit, and then your website sessions from referral traffic from email marketing, because that will tell you how many visits and referrals to your website are coming from email campaigns. The next thing is very simple, and that's to just remember the fundamentals of sending good emails. So keep your content simple, keep it scannable, 
use calls to action sparingly. You don't want to stuff your emails with CTAs. You do have to choose you know, which actions you want people to take at any given point in time. Keep your subject lines tight. So 25 to 30 characters is typically considered a good baseline for subject line length. You want to personalize them when it makes sense to do so. And then you want to avoid spam flaggers. So things like caps, unnecessary punctuation, special characters, you'll want to steer clear of those things. Um, one thing that I don't see very commonly among schools is a double opt-in. And so you've probably seen this when you've subscribed to get a newsletter or um, to get updates from a retailer. Those are common examples of, of the types of businesses that tend to use double opt-ins. And that basically requires a subscriber to confirm they want to be added to an email list. So you'll so you'll complete the form, you say you want to be added, you receive a follow-up email typically after you complete the sign-up form, just asking you to click one extra button to say, yes, I do actually want to receive updates from fill in the blank. And so even though that's an extra step for your subscribers, it does have a lot of benefits. It can protect you from incorrect or accidental signups. It reduces spam bots and it can help build your school's reputation as a sender, which is something that we'll come back to at the end. And then for testing, even though testing based on email opens is not super useful anymore, it shouldn't discourage you from testing the things that you can. So you can still test variables like your creative, you can test image load times, calls to action, and your links to gauge email engagement and continue to monitor changes over time. So to go back to your sender reputation and deliverability, you want to make sure that you're maximizing the chances of your emails getting through to begin with. And that will come from some of the best practices that I already mentioned um, and, and checking your sender reputation, which is something that you can actually do. And why that's important is that internet service providers, they assign reputation scores to institutions that send emails. And the higher your score, the more likely it is that an ISP is going to deliver your emails. So if you've had deliverability issues in the past, there are tools you can use. Sender score is one, and we'll link to that in the recording for this, um, that can help you get more specific information about where you stand on a scale of zero to 100 and where you might have some room to improve. And next up, back to Megan. Thanks. Yeah, so um, looking at just our iPhone users that are email eligible, there are 14.4 million of them. So that's about 44% of our total users. Um, with this number, we can't guarantee that they, they are also using Apple Mail. Like they could have an iPhone and be an iPhone user, but not be using Apple Mail. But just for kind of a high level number, the percentage of our email lists that are using an iPhone um, this number did increase since the last time that Angela and I gave this presentation, which I think um, it's just kind of anecdotal data to, to keep in, in the back of your mind. Um, to look at a specific email send to talk more about what we're seeing on our end, so pre-September 2021, we had a 46% open rate and a 6.7% click rate. I know we had mentioned open rate shouldn't be a metric that you're fully reliant on, but I wanted to call it out just to kind of um, show you guys that we're seeing the same things that were predicted due to the, the iOS rollout. So then if we look at post-September 21, we saw an increase in our open rate. It went from 46 pre-September 2021 to 60% post-September 2021. 
Um, and then we saw a decrease in our quick rate. It went from 6.7% pre-September 2021 to 4.5% post-September 2021. And so we're absolutely seeing this change on our end. We're, um, we saw the inflated open rates and we saw a decrease in our quick rate. And so we're taking the same steps that Angela talked about. We're um, you know, testing, we're making sure that our emails are still being received, we're trying to make sure that engagement stays high, and then we're just going to continue to monitor the data and figure out, you know, what testing is working, whether it is changing CTAs or changing up the content of our emails, um, really just figuring out how to make sure that we're still sending these emails for our partners in the best way that we can. Okay, and then last but not least, <laughs> we're going to talk about the predicted death of third-party cookies. And the reason why this is labeled as soonish with a question mark is because Google keeps pushing the date back. Um, so right now we're looking at this being a 2023 change. There is a lot of pushback um, coming from the advertising industry in general. And I think between that and you know Google's efforts to try to work with people to make sure that this is something that doesn't cause the industry to implode, um, that is where the date keeps getting pushed back. So we're not 100% sure what this is, when this is going to happen, but it's still something that we should be aware of and be ready for. So before we talk about what's changing, I wanted to break it all the way down to what we're even talking about, because I don't think that how cookies are defined are intuitive. So cookies are small text files with little pieces of data that are used to identify your computer as you use a computer network. And third-party cookies are cookies that are placed by a website other than the one that you're currently on, like an advertiser or a social media site. So as we look at how third-party cookies are used, these are things that businesses have been using for quite some time to do everything from tracking website visitors and improving UX to gathering data to help with ad targeting and monitoring user behavior on other websites. So as an example, let's say you're in the market for new running shoes and you go to a site like Zappos or DSW and click on a pair that you're interested in, but you don't actually buy the shoes. And then you leave and you go to a site that has nothing to do with running shoes, but it shows you ads for the pair of shoes that you were interested in. That is a result of a third-party cookie that was dropped on your browser. So it's something that we see in practice all the time. But as we talk about what exactly is dying, there are a few things going on. So Firefox and Safari have actually been blocking third-party cookies for a while, but the change with Chrome is really notable because of its massive market share. And so between these three really popular browsers deciding not to support this technology anymore, that's essentially what's rendering it dead, so to speak. And this is what this is predicted to mean. So some of the things that are going to either go away or become less effective are retargeting, audience extension, which is showing an ad to an audience across different websites other than your own. That won't really be possible. Um, and then view through attribution, where website visitors see an ad, don't click on it, and then return to take an action, and you're able to you know, connect those dots. That is something that will not be possible. But there are some good news, some, some good pieces of news. Um, so one is that not all cookies are being banned. So first-party cookies that are used to track data about your website visitors can still be used. 
and they're still supported by Safari and Firefox. You'll also still be able to use Google Ads, which will be driven by Google's first party cookies and this new initiative called Privacy Sandbox, um, which is basically designed to develop privacy-driven advertising methods that protect privacy, but also allow some degree of targeting for advertisers. So what will happen with Privacy Sandbox, and there's a connection with this to what they're, they're talking about doing with the Android platform and Google Play, is that cookies will be replaced by five APIs that advertisers will use to receive aggregated data about things like conversions and attributions. So it's basically a workaround that they're creating for this cookie-less environment that they're trying to make happen <laughs> for, for reasons, right? This part of their, their quest for world domination, maybe, who knows? Um, so with that being said, other platforms that rely on third-party data will be impacted. As I mentioned, there's lots of organizations that are concerned about this. And so Google is trying to work with the advertising industry at large to create some better alternatives for advertisers to make sure that the market is still competitive. And then one thing that's important to keep in mind as you continue to see headlines about this, you know, when, when updates become available is that cookies were actually not a marketing silver bullet to begin with. So there are things that have surfaced in recent years, like ad blockers, and then just basic consumer behavioral patterns, like clearing cookie caches, sharing browsers with family members. There are lots of things that have happened over the course of the last few years that have actually made cookie information less useful. So it's not the end of the world. There's no need to panic. And there are some things like with the other topics that we've covered that you can do. So even though there's still a lot of noise about this when updates come out, you can stay calm, but just stay current. And so blogs for um, you know, updates on digital marketing, shameless plug, Enrollment Insights has lots of great information, um, but there are lots of others, including Google's own, that have some good resources for keeping tabs on the change and other privacy-related updates that are only going to continue to happen as we keep seeing. So you'll wanna make sure that you subscribe to receive these updates, not just so you're constantly in the loop on what's going on, but so you know when this third-party cookie elimination actually takes place. The other thing is, as I mentioned, Google has said multiple times that they want to work with advertisers to make sure that they can still do their jobs. And so, you know, there's still some hope there. Similar to the email update that we discussed earlier, this is also an opportunity to mix things up. So first party data like your email list can still be used for retargeting and email marketing. Um, you can also use contextual targeting, which is kind of old school, but basically allows you to market based on the context of a site that a user is visiting. So as an example, a Google ad using contextual targeting would appear on a site with content that's relevant to your school. And there are a couple ways that you can do this. One is to use placement targeting, which allows your school to use specific um, sites on the Google display network that you want your ad to appear on. Another option would be to use keyword targeting in your display ads, which would involve placing your ads near websites with content that's relevant to keywords that you choose. And then Google will use that list to determine which websites to share your ads on based on content that matches those terms. So all of that is to say, keep an eye on this space, don't panic, and know that there are workarounds for you. 
Um, and with that, I'm going to ask Megan to wrap things up and share how we're positioned to support our partners with this particular change before we jump into questions. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I don't have the answer either. So it's taking our own advice again to just stay up to date, stay current and calm. Um, Niche is in a, a good position to handle this change, maybe a better position compared to some others. All the data that we're using is first party data. So we're less reliant on the third party cookies to serve our ads. Um, and so because of that, and assuming that the you know first party cookie doesn't go away, we should be able to continue serving our ads. I think um, that is kind of the mindset that we have right now. And we haven't heard otherwise from Google or any of these other platforms that um, you know, anything else is going to go away. And so because of that, we're, we're in a really good place right now. And, um, yeah, we're just going to keep staying up to date and figure out like what we need to test, what we need to change, if anything, when this, when this finally happens in maybe 2023, we'll see if it happens then it's been pushed back over and over again. So we'll see if it happens in 2023, but, um, yeah, we shall see. All right, it's Q&A time. And I know that Will is planning to help us out um, with things that come in in the chat. We did have a couple of things that came in during registration that we can start with, starting with this guy here. So this question, which I believe came from a higher ed institution, this is referring to an announcement that Facebook made last summer that it would stop targeting for um, people under 18 based on interests and activity on other apps and websites. And this is something that applies to Facebook, Instagram, and Messenger, but it does not mean that you've lost the ability to target people under 18 completely. So you still can set up campaign targets to reach people under 18 based on location, gender, and age parameters, but you're not able to use lookalike audience targeting or a specific list of people, which you know we've seen can be a little hit or miss now anyway. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that a lot of institutions that are targeting students in this age group are shifting advertising to platforms like Snap and TikTok to kind of round out their presence on Instagram. Um, I'm actually going to borrow this from Will's side of the house. He did a survey last fall with, is it Tudor Collegiate Strategies, TCS, that looked at the college search process for the class of 2022. And when we looked at how students engage with social media in that process, we saw that even though Instagram is still a pretty solid player, um, YouTube and TikTok kind of round out the top three for both content views and engagement. So it's worth taking a look at investing in those channels with this age group if you aren't already. Um, but I would say the big takeaway here with all of the things that we've talked about is just the importance of having a really well-rounded marketing ecosystem so that you can adapt when something changes and you aren't necessarily stuck with, with one platform. This is another one that popped up and I'll let Megan chime in too, because when we talked about this um, this morning, she said that this was something that she was also hearing and seeing. So I would love to hear her perspective. But the short answer to this question 
is yes. <laughs> um, Facebook advertising has gotten more expensive. Um, and it, it's not just you if you're experiencing that. Um, they actually shared that their advertising costs increased by 47% last year, which is significant. Um, and and uh, that could very well be in part due to the fact that they're trying to make up for the losses that they're seeing after iOS 14. I think with their last earnings call, they said that they had lost something in the neighborhood of $10 billion as a result of this change. So I'm sure that they are looking for ways to make that up. Um, if you are looking for ways to reduce your Facebook ad costs, one way is to do what I mentioned with the last question, which is, you know, kind of spread the, the wealth a little bit with your advertising strategy and not necessarily um, be super dependent on Facebook. Um, but knowing that, especially with K-12, with the need to reach those parents, that Facebook is really, really important. Um, you don't want to walk away from it altogether. So um, some things that you might want to look at are kind of old school, not old school, but traditional inbound marketing. Like the simple lead gen is something that seems to be working really well right now. So driving people to low barrier content like PDF downloads and checklists are actually being less expensive um, compared to things like event registrations or video series. Um, you just want to make sure that that content is really valuable and solves a specific problem. And so there are things that I've seen like kindergarten readiness guides or checklists even for comparing schools for people who are in the school search process um, that tend to perform very well. Um, as you're running those ads, keep sending people to your landing pages. That's still the best practice on your website, even though Facebook will ask you to create a form or a landing page within the app. Um, those have a tendency to result in slightly lower performance for folks. They actually do want to go to the site of the advertiser. Um, so it does benefit for you to do that. And then another thing is to focus on your ad creative. So you want to really keep it fresh and focus on making sure that it stands out with strong visuals and messaging. Um, an interesting thing that's happened in the last year is that there's more of a need to refresh your ad creative on Facebook. So you want to try to do it once a month if you can. If you're short on time, maybe focus on images and visuals because that's what stops people in the feed. But at this point in time, the algorithm is really favoring new content and the cost per impression is typically going down. Um, so those are a few things that you can do. But Megan, I would love to hear more about what you've been seeing in terms of cost changes with this Facebook update. Yeah, so for our cost per click and uh, cost per impressions to CPM, we've seen about a 50% increase, um, really just looking at the last four-ish months. Um, and it's our costs have been kind of steadily increasing since iOS 14, but there's been a bigger spike that at least we saw within the last four-ish months. Um, also comparing our costs on Facebook compared to our costs on Google, it's actually like 50 to sometimes even 60% higher depending on the segment that we're running our ads for, uh, more expensive on Facebook than it is on Google. So we're definitely feeling this and feeling it more than we have in the past. Yeah. Do we have other questions from 
our friends we in the audience do and if you do have <laughs> questions that came up you can drop those in the chat and we'll get to those as long as we have some time here uh, so first up here is google analytics still able to track conversions that happen as a result of facebook ads i believe so yes yes <laughs> especially using utm right that's correct yes. yes. make sure yes i actually is... i cannot stress enough the importance of utms right now especially yeah yes that is what we rely on um for tracking our our ads great uh so you mentioned a little bit uh about sender reputation can you talk a little bit more about how you manage that uh you mentioned some things to measure it yeah, I mean, I, some of them are things that we mentioned, like avoiding spammy content, both in your email and in your subject lines. Um, there is some experimentation that I know some folks have been doing with things like putting emojis and, and that sort of thing in subject lines. And that's fine-ish, you know, when, when done sparingly. There are some competing opinions about that. Sometimes that, that can get you sent directly into the spam folder, which is never good. Um, so I would say if you want to experiment with that, do so sparingly. Um, when we talked about special characters, that's things like um, characters that are not related to punctuation. So, you know, you want to steer clear of things like that. Um, there are some things that tend to make your emails a little friendlier. So something that is very common in B2B is instead of having an email come from an institution or some sort of anonymized name. So in, in the school world, it would be admissions at fill in the blank school. Have it come from a person, you know, like things like that can be, can be very, very simple. Um, and even just making sure that your emails are well composed. So you don't wanna to lean too heavily on images. You wanna make sure that there's a balance between imagery and, and narrative text. Um, and some of the other things that we included about paying attention to image load times and, and things like that, all of that can help with your sender reputation. And monitoring your score over time can help too. Uh, Megan, you talked about the share of, of niche users who are on iOS 14, 15. You know, how can a school see their own breakdown of website users? Yeah, so if we're just looking at website users, you can pull that directly from analytics. That's where I got it from. And in Google Analytics, there's an audience tab. And then within that, there's a device tab. And so within the device tab, you'll be able to see if they're iOS versus Android. And then you can go even further to see what specific operating uh, system they're using. And so it's a secondary dimension that you would add within analytics. And then once you have that set up, you're able to see over whatever time period you would want to look at. Um, and then what I did was just compare that to total users. So then I'm able to see this is how many of our total users are on iOS versus not. Yeah. And being a secondary to mention, you can add that into other reports then too, correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And you could, uh, yeah, pull that report and uh, look at it over time. That would kind of be the key thing to look at. I actually... As a follow-up to that, do you want to mention that on the email front, I was surprised to see when we first wrote about this last summer, how few email campaign platforms allow you to see the breakdown of which systems your, your subscribers are using to engage with email. So I know that there are a couple that definitely do, HubSpot's one of them, but a surprising number of email platforms do not allow you to see that data. 
um, which can be a challenge if you're trying to get a read on just how much of an impact you can expect from this if you haven't already seen it. Um, so that is something to watch out for, unfortunately. Well, that looks like all the questions now. We can give it a minute or so here and see if we have any others come in. Uh, but thank you to both of you for sharing these insights. And uh, just a reminder to the audience that you will be getting a recording on uh, some additional resources tomorrow in your email. Yeah, it looks like that is it. So I hope everyone has a, a great afternoon and, and hanging into the weekend. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks Will.